Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Hello and welcome to The Grange Point. My name is Lachlan. I'm Camille. I'm Laurie. This week is part one of our Big Issues and Challenges specials, where we talk about all these big challenges and issues facing society and explore some of the latest science and potential solutions for these. This week, we're going to be hearing from Lachlan about how to feed the planet sustainably. So this week we're going to be talking in a series of discussion points around some of the big issues facing science and, in fact, the planet. I'm going to take each of these big challenges or big issues and we're going to discuss solutions to them, later scientific research about them, and then actually further explore this issue in detail. And we're going to be looking at this week at how we can adapt to the planet changing, how we can adapt to genetic engineering and cloning, how we can feed our planet, and how we can deal with leaving our planet, maybe permanently. So I'm going to kick it off this week by passing it on to panelist number one, Mr. Turpin. So what is your big challenge? Okay, so my challenge is a logistical one, um, also biological and economical. So as medicine develops, we can diagnose and predict diseases earlier and earlier. We've got better drugs, better hygiene, better nutrition and exercise. Basically, we're increasing the average lifespan of the global population more and more every year. We're getting older and older. So in the face of this growing aging population, we have to make sure that we have enough food for everyone, that this growth is sustainable. So so we need to feed people um, and we need to find the energy to feed people. We need the space and we need to make sure we're feeding people in a way that doesn't pollute everyone. And we have to make sure they're getting enough food to survive and be healthy. And this is actually a huge challenge. As you guys might have heard, um, one of the best, most sustainable focuses on sustainable feeding of the planet is vegetarianism. Um, because meat is so expensive, um, you need like 10 times the amount of energy, resources, water, roughly, to eat meat than to just eat vegetables. Um, that's rough figures, but yeah, that's that's it. Um, the problem is, um, genetic factors can actually influence how well people respond to a vegetarian diet. Um, generally, with supplements um, and a balanced vegetarian diet, you can be fine, but there are exceptions of people who need um, other sources of protein to sort of be able to be healthy. Um, and so the question is, how do we deal with getting this protein to people? So that, that's a really interesting challenge. So this is talking about, obviously, natural meats and natural grains. But what about, say, a lab-grown meat, which is something we've talked about on the podcast before, especially the challenge to create a an artificial steak that is grown in a lab that tastes just as good. There was recently a taste test in London. Um, exactly on this on this issue, and that's that's true, and that has less ethical implications because you're not taking a life to eat this meat. Um, but when we're still talking on a global scale and a global population, um, energetically and time consuming, it's even more expensive than just growing an animal, which is already so so expensive. So we're not talking so, about the. So we're not talking about the ethical decision to be vegetarian or not. We're looking purely at it from a logistical and energy and a cost perspective. Yeah, I'm focusing on trying to sustainably feed the population. Right. I was just going to say, um, just to clarify, when you say expensive, you mean expensive more in terms of energy and water supply than in terms of cost. That's right, because any of these things, like, you can optimise processes over time and things can become economical, but I'm talking purely in cost to the environment um, and cost of time and stuff like that. 
Um, so yeah, basically, when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about resources. And that, that's what a concept in, uh, in environmental and sustainability accounting and sustainability is called the triple bottom line. So you have your financial costs, but also you have your sustainable and environmental and impact costs, as well as your community costs as well. And that's what you're really looking at here, those, those grouped costs, as opposed to a single what we might associate as dollars. That's right. Um, another thing people have started to do is looking about what if we don't need food? What if we, we're not talking about solar panels here or batteries, don't eat batteries, they're highly toxic, cadmium, um, but the idea of using supplements only um, to actually fuel your body and get what you need, so just eating pure synthesized nutrients. So this is exactly what was promised to us in the 1950s and 60s in classic sci-fi where we would have our pills that contain everything that we need to live and sort of further explored by Star Trek with their synthesizers which actually make all their food for themselves. So what would we actually need to be able to survive like that? Um, well, a tech startup in the US have actually made a dietary supplement called Soylent. Wait, they... isn't Soylent Green People? Spoiler alert, guys, for a 1970s movie. Oh, dude, that spoiler was 44 years old. Um, but yeah, exactly. They've actually named it based off this movie, which is a That's bit a weird. terrible I know. <laughs> Naming a product based on cannibalism. It always works. <laughs> but Soylent is a white powder you mix up with water and you drink three times a day, and they say it gives your body all the nutrients it needs. Now, I'm not completely happy with this, because to start off with, instead of reading nutrition textbook or anything, they literally just experimented with different nutrition levels till they got it right. <laughs> And the guy is quoted saying, yeah, one time I didn't get enough potassium and I couldn't move my limbs properly. Well, look, evidence-based science is important. Yeah. So I'm not going to discount him doing an experiment, testing, and that. But that's probably not going to pass the ethics boards for many of the uh, research departments. Not to mention, in this case, someone's already done the evidence-based science for him. Correct. Yeah, that's not my... So that's, that's an issue with it, is one, the guy seems a bit silly... But even if we did optimize it and we had um, this powder that could give you all the nutrients you needed, um, there is more and more evidence pointing towards just eating whole food can give us things we don't really understand yet. There are so many trace chemicals present uh, in fresh fruit and vegetables that our body seems to need, and we're still investigating that whole world of, of, of what that is. So if we can't isolate these products, we can't put them in supplements. And so we will be starving our bodies of certain things we need to stay healthy. And that's a really interesting question because you're talking about some of the unknown effects of actually eating whole food or realistic looking food. Um, what about the psychological effect that I would assume would be related to considering eating food as opposed to eating a tablet? Well, I think that we're designed, I mean, I don't do any psychology, but we're sort of designed to eat and to enjoy food and to <laughs> yeah. eat with people um, and to eat this... To, nibble, to have to swallow a pill is hardly uh, the best way of having an enjoyable meal or dinner like we were doing right now. And this isn't even a pill, it's actually a thick cold sludge. Well, that's just like sharing a milkshake together? No, it's just really nasty. So it could be going steady in the 1950s US at a milk bar? I guess so. But the, the most fun thing about eating a dietary supplement is it doesn't count as food. And so it's not regulated as tightly, so oh, you don't gosh. have to have as hygienic production <laughs> facilities to actually eat it. So that's just a pro tip, guys. If you're going to regulate food and health and safety standards, which governments should do, it's a very important function of governments, you really ought to consider supplements in the same sort of sphere.
Oh, well, so the best way to enhance um, our sources of food would be genetic engineering. But just genetic engineering specifically relating to plants, how does that kind of work? Okay, so um, you're trying to optimize your yield, you're trying to get the most fruit and veggies possible. Um, but you've got stuff trying to kill your crops, and you've also got the crops themselves not necessarily growing that well. So what you can do is you can optimize them to express more growth proteins, be resistant to heat and cold and insects, and all these things sort of accumulate to produce um, healthier um, fruit and more fruit. Um, there's a lot of issues. Um, people are still quite squeamish about this idea um, because if these same modifications and advantages pass to like weeds and stuff like that, they can mess up already strained biosystems that are already under a lot of pressure and, and that, give them unfair advantages. And that raises a really interesting question, as we were talking about before, there's the triple bottom line. Yeah, you might have come up with a really fancy and fantastic new super crop, but if it takes more energy to actually produce that than it does to actually produce wheat normally, then you're not actually having any gain. Or if it starts infiltrating other crops and destabilizing the entire ecosystem, that's also bad. And But this is a, something that's been done in the past. I mean, this we've spoken about on the podcast before. Camille and I have spoken about uh, the Green Revolution in India, where they actually uh, basically solved the major food shortage and challenge that we're going to face in the 1960s through this clever use of genetic engineering for crops. Yeah, and as long as you control it, um, it's really, really clever and really powerful. It just does have limitations, and there are still risks you can't really know about until you're actually implementing it on a wide scale. Plus, you still need somewhere to plant and water all these crops. So what else out there is there, aside from growing food, can we look at? Well, the problem is we still are facing this problem of some people need protein. Some people genetically, they need to actually consume protein in its amino acidy, meaty, organic sort of form. Especially if I want to work on my reps and lifts, lift, lift strength. Oh, if you want some sick gains, absolutely. Yeah, don't skip leg day. Or protein day, for that matter. No, every day can be protein day. If we resort to entomophagy... So, so entomophagy, if I want to really, really become a really big, strong muscle builder, are you telling me I'm going to need to have my dietary supplement foods as well as ants? I'm going to be eating giant walking trees? Not quite. You'll be eating something a bit smaller than that. You'll be eating micro-livestock. Micro-livestock? Like yeah. tiny cows. cows. Tiny cows. Tiny, tiny cows. No, I'm talking about insects. Well, I guess aphids are the cows of the bug world. It's true, yes. So what I'm talking about here is the mass production of insects and cultivating insects um, and then sort of smushing them up to make protein, protein shakes. Basically. Um, but there's actually a lot of advantages. Even though it sounds really gross, actually for a lot of human history we've been eating bugs. And it still happens a lot, I, I think, in um, South America and some other places. Sort of, especially in the Western world, it's trailed off a little bit. I think people are a bit squeamish, but it's got a lot of advantages to it. Um, so it's really high in protein and a lot of vitamins you need to sort of build body mass and stay healthy. Um, but it requires about 1% of the water required to raise beef. So that's even less than it requ requires to raise vegetables. Um, and it only produces about 1% of the carbon dioxide that beef does. Cause, um, and no methane. And no methane, because um, 
farming and, and especially farming animals is one of the biggest sources of carbon dioxide and atmospheric pollution. Mm. Um, and the other really cool thing is it requires a lot less space and doesn't need to be grassy space where things can grow easily. Like you can have a giant insect farm in the desert if you want to. Or in your basement. Yeah, gross. Or your bedroom. Yeah, so the uh, so that's that's really fascinating. So, and I guess that also raises another problem though, because I guess if you have this many bugs, I guess you could try and like engineer the bugs to be larger in size, so you get more bang for your buck from the bug themselves. Then you could sort of like grow a race of super crickets or super aphids that you could eat like a normal steak. Oh, I don't I think, think that that's quite how forward. bugs work. <laughs> <I'm>... No, <laughs> that's not Evolutionarily, they like to be pretty small, Justin, but you can raise a lot of them pretty quickly and you can homogenize them. There is the issue that people think it's gross and you sort of have to feed people things that people want to eat. And the only other problem is um, the sort of use of pesticides. Yeah. So if these insects are eating smaller bugs that have consumed molecules of pesticides, they can quickly bioaccumulate and, and poison things. So bioaccumulation is a process by which a very small to toxin can be present in a small concentration um, for some really low level things in the food chain, say plankton or bugs. And they can eat and be fine with this small level of toxin inside them. But when something slightly larger than, say a bird or an in another large insect eats them, um, they also then concentrate up the toxin again. And then something even bigger than that, say a cat or another type of predator eats that, then it concentrates the toxin another level forward and so on and so on until it actually builds up to a person where, uh, where someone like a human eats it and the actual toxin is in a really high concentration so bioaccumulation can be a really damaging part of it it really starts on something quite small and when, by aggregating up this collection of different toxins can build up exponentially to a dangerous threshold for humanity so that can be one of the limiting factors to eating bugs so wrapping it up here what can we then do summarizing all these discussion points and arguments to live sustainably and feed the amount of population on our planet. Well, simply, as Lachlan first explained, we can eat less meat uh, because comparative to vegetables, it takes a lot less energy, water and resources to grow meat. So that's one step that we can take. The second step is to intake instead supplements. And this is by replacing diet, the normal food that we eat with dietary supplements that actually give us everything that we need instead, the 1950s meal in a pill kind of concept. But there are significant drawbacks to that for example, people wanting to consume food in its real format, plus a lack of regulation and accurate science into the unknown benefits of eating certain foods. The next stage that we can really look at is perhaps the most strange, but sensical for all of us, and that is actually to consider eat entomophagy, which is eating insects, because insects, after all, can actually give us a lot of protein that we need that we can't replace either with vegetables or supplements in the best way. And it's actually very quick and efficient to do so. Now, of course, there is the ick factor relating to this. There is also the lack of regulation, but FDA regulations do allow us to already eat some safe level of insects. And many cultures outside the Western, Western sphere of influence actually do eat bugs as a part of standard part of their culture. So these are some of the solutions that we can look at to helping feed humanity going forward into the future. But as always, Molecular chemistry and bioengineering will play a key part in helping us to find a sustainable way to feed the planet. So thank you, Lachlan, for helping us answer this challenge. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week is part one of our Big Challenges special, where we talked about how to feed the planet sustainably, including eating less meat and more vegetables, eating potentially bugs, or having supplements to replace parts of our diet. Tune in next week for more parts of our Big Challenges special.
Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.